All the Lonely People. Written and produced by me, Jason Nelson. Chapter 2 Would like to say a few words. I almost missed my cue. For the past hour, my attention has been solely on my daughter, and easy distraction to everything else. There's something about the childlike wonder of caskets that allows for a dissociative fantasy. Why is Mommy in there? Because Mommy died. She looks like she's sleeping. Well... When you die, it's like your body goes to sleep for a long, long time. Why did mommy die? Because she was sick for a long time. Why was she sick? I don't know. Can I have some lemonade? Her attention has been that of a bird's, flitting around the church. To the stained glass, to the musicians, to the priest sprinkling the casket with holy water before we enshrouded in a white symbolic cloth. My attention follows hers, pointing things out, playing a game of I Spy. Do you see a pink flower? An easy win after a few moments. Do you see Mama Mary? She points to the statue in the corner. Nobody puts Mary in the corner, I whisper, but she doesn't get it. Do you see anyone wearing black? I ask. Too easy. I brush the back of her hair with my hand adjusting the little pink butterfly hair clip holding the hair back from her face. Would you like to say a few words, the priest asks again. I peel my hand from hers and stand, scooting her closer to my parents as I make my way to the lectern. I was never any good at this. She always had a far superior memory than I did. There'd be times when she would bring up a memory from the past, and I would have no recollection. Sometimes, if I was lucky, there'd be a faint glimmer, but she would relish in the memory. Every action, every emotion still fresh, and I would be left there smiling and nodding, pretending to remember more than I did. There'd be nights when our conversations would end and we'd drift into separate corners of the house, and I would pore over the details that she had shared, internalizing the event, trying to force myself to remember. There were even times, moments with our daughter, things that happened in the not-too-distant past that I held no strong recollection or emotional attachment to. Why couldn't I remember something that was so firmly rooted in her mind? Was it not important to me? With each story as she recounted it, it seemed as if it was something that would be important enough to remember, but for whatever reason it wasn't. Even now, as I try to recall examples of those lapses of memory, I cannot recall those specific instances. But there is one memory that is firmly rooted. We stand, making small talk as we wait for our table. For whatever reason, I'm being shy. I want to make eye contact with her, but I can't, because every time I do, I can't stop smiling, and she'll stop mid-sentence and ask, What? I believe that this memory is ingrained more firmly than any other because although this event had only occurred once in reality, it played over in my head on an infinite loop before it had even occurred. Before this occurrence, we had met several months prior. It wasn't love at first sight, but I was beginning to realize, which was causing my boyish grin, 
that she was coming into focus. I had met and known many women who absorbed my thoughts and imagination, but she infected them. Since the phone call setting up that date, every stray thought led back to her. Before her, I had always regarded the idea of love as passion, as an emotion that surpassed all other emotions. Whenever she entered my thoughts, that heightened sensation was never there. Instead, it was replaced by this nagging feeling of something drawing me towards some event. Because we were still strangers, it was easy to push that feeling away and try to chase down another sort of connection. Yet, that nagging feeling still persisted, growing alongside my curiosity about what might happen. Through a friend of a friend, we were introduced more formally and began conversing online. Before long, numbers were exchanged. Late nights in front of the glare of the computer screen were traded for late nights sitting in random spots through the apartment and city talking on our smartphones. After several weeks, I finally built up enough courage to ask her out to dinner. I had spent the week before watching all the late night talk shows, practicing my small talk. A backup of talking points were stored on my smartphone in case we hit a dry spell or my memory proved faulty easily accessible during a conveniently timed bathroom break or fictitious celebrity sighting. That wasn't him. I could have sworn. So, how about the weather? Over the course of actual meal courses and drinks and avenues of conversation, I began to realize that through my initial resistance, an idea of what could be love had blossomed. As the hour grew late, the idea continued to grow. It wasn't passion, or at least my idea of passion. It was the collision of two beings realizing that they, out of billions of other beings, ought to belong to each other. As devoid of emotion as that might sound, there was still some semblance of emotion, but it wasn't emotion fueled by passion's fire. There was a spark, no, several sparks from all those other little moments leading up to that night. Tonight, though, it was fanned, ever-growing, supported by both logic and reason. Once dinner was over, the conversation carried on outside as we walked down the city streets. Away from the noise and distractions of the restaurant, our attention was solely on each other. We walked side by side. For once, I walked without my hands in my pockets, trying to judge her reaction as my fingertips purposefully, in the most accidental sort of way, brushed her own. I finally took the plunge and reached for her hand. She didn't shy away my fingertips sliding across her palm, gently taking hold as her hand received mine. Palms met. Fingers grasped. Electricity. Love was more than just an idea or a feeling. For us, it was a connection, so strong that it went beyond words or gestures. It was difficult imagining the time before her. She came into focus, existing, and in doing so, helped shape my own existence. Now it's difficult to grasp what this time without her will be like. Without her, a part of me feels like I am missing part of my existence. It's to be expected, it's, it's part of the grieving process, but there is so much about me she shaped. Her distaste for beards is the reason why I'm always clean-shaven. She helped provide the motivation and confidence for me to take my career to where it is today. She's the reason I'm a good father, but... As she got sicker and weaker, so did my confidence in being a parent. How could I do this without her? When she finally said that science had enough of her and the trial stopped, we still thought we'd have more time. 
time to prepare and plan and have conversations, but what was months turned to weeks and then to days, and then she was gone. Throughout her decline, we kept hearing the thoughts and prayers mantra, typically coupled with the idea that God has a plan, but this can't be God's plan. Why would God want my daughter to grow up without a mother? I have hoped that there is an explanation, but then I remember all those stories about how God wanted Abraham to kill his son, or how he made a bet with the devil and then proceeded to mess with Job. There's an element of pridefulness and vindictiveness and cruelty that's present in these stories that we gloss over. The killing of innocent people, the death of the firstborn of Egypt, stoning people to death, the sacrifice of his only son. If God exists and is a good God, then why does cancer exist? Why do we allow children to be born with hideous diseases that could be prevented with a magic wave of his wand? Why would he create such a botched genome that allows for these cancer-causing mutations? If he does exist, then he's the biggest mass murderer in history. I've asked, and asked again, and I can't continue questioning what his motives are for hurting countless of innocents. What's the point in praying to a being that either can't help or simply doesn't care? Someone told me that God knows exactly what I've gone through because of the sacrifice of his son. But he doesn't know. Because he got his son back. With some wear and tear, but he got him back. I don't understand the concept of sacrifice through this lens. I lost my wife, and she's gone. She isn't coming back. Her body was ravaged by the disease and by all the medical trials and chemotherapy, and she isn't coming back. I feel a hand on my back, and it's then that I realize my eyes are closed, leaning on the lectern, head down. I look up and see my daughter staring at her dangling, swinging feet. My mother is crying. The priest is standing behind me, his hand on my back his eyes full of empathy and something else. I walk back to my seat and sit, taking my daughter's hand in my own, and that's when I start shaking. All the Lonely People is written and produced by me, Jason Nelson. Original soundtrack and composition by Tone of Just Tone Music. Sound editing by Brian Kaler. This show is made possible and ad-free through your contributions. You can support us at patreon.com slash allthelonelypeople. You can also purchase our ebook on amazon.com, as well as our soundtrack through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite player. Spread the word about this podcast by following us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for All the Lonely People Podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. Share it with your friends. Tune in next week for another chapter. And remember, don't be lonely.